So let's think for a moment about prophecy, because as we study Daniel, it's going to come up a lot. How much do you know about prophecy? How important is prophecy to you? I propose this question because after Marcia taught last week, I started thinking about what was the purpose of the prophecy? God said this would happen a hundred hundreds of years prior to the exile, that the event in the exile would take place, and here it is happening. He said it as a warning to the people, a preparation, guidance. He also had a promise. And in addition to all of these things, we have to think about what does prophecy mean for the integrity of the Bible? It means a lot. It means a great deal. It means a lot at Christmas when we talk about the birth of Jesus being prophesied over before it happened and then it happens. We think about what it would have meant to the disciples and the um, prophecy of waiting for the Messiah to come and the impact and the resolution and the resolve that they had to continue teaching about Jesus, you know, after his death and resurrection and even to the point of their deaths. And then in the New Testament, we see that um, the second coming of the Lord is talked about a lot. In fact, in, in, in a commentary, it says that for every prediction about Jesus's birth, every prophecy about it, there's eight on his second coming. So given the, the prominence of prophecy in the scripture, we have little doubt that it's significant in our lives too. So I want you to think for a minute about the second coming of Christ. How much you know about the prophecy or how detailed we're all on our own levels. But I want you to think about it. If we're all in this room right now and without a shadow of a doubt, no more guesses, no more speculation, we knew that Christ was coming tomorrow or it was happening. What would you do? How would you feel? What would you think? Would you write down what you were seeing? Would you connect with other Christians? Would you turn to the Bible more and be like, I need cliff notes here. I need to figure out what's going on. Would, you know, and reading as much as you can. Would you be filled with joy? Would you be scared of the unknowns? Would you turn to other believers or lukewarm Christians and just beg them to wake up and see that the time has come? Or would you put wholehearted faith and trust into Lord, even, you know, even more than you already were because of what he said happened. Now I say all this because I want you to think about Daniel's perspective. He knew scripture. Um, if you turn to Daniel 9, 2, it talks about him saying, I understand scripture. I understand Jeremiah and that the captivity would happen for 70 years. So somebody poured into Daniel's life. And um, I was talking to Pastor James about it because he's such a um, history buff. And he was talking about by two or by five years old, the Jewish boys were um to know the first two chapters or the two books of the Torah and that, um, you know, there's no internet there. There's no TV there. What, what they did is they memorized the story. They memorized scripture. So Daniel knew of the events foretold by God hundreds of years prior to its happening. And then all of a sudden it starts happening for Daniel. The things that he knew about 
were happening. So how important was prophecy to Daniel's life? Did it impact his relationship with God? And did it help him build that resolve and that trust that he needed to be able to, um, you know, stand firm in that time and during those um during his time of exile. And last week when Marcia showed the map of um, Daniel and the journey from um, Judah to Babylonia, we're talking about 500 miles on foot, a treacherous journey. And you think about what was Daniel thinking about? Was he discussing with the fellow Jews the awe of the truth of what God predicted happening? Was he filled with sorrow about how his forefathers had rejected everything that God had said, and it came to this point of exile where he would never see his homeland again. Was he resolved at the point, to the point of saying, I'm not going to, I'm the remnant. I'm the, I'm what's left and I am going to follow God. Perhaps he was thankful for the words that God had said when he told him how to live in the land of exile, you know, and, um, we know from the book that Daniel was a man of God. He trusted him wholeheartedly. And I, I do think that the prophecy in God's word had a big impact. And so I want us to be thinking about what kind of impact does prophecy have on me? And what does it have for you? Does it help us to live more for God? Does it help us with the integrity of what the Bible says? Does it does it in, envelop more trust that we have? You know, and sometimes it's hard. We think of Daniel and some of the other characters of the Bible, the people in the Bible as being like so far above anything that we could ever be. But the truth is Daniel was just a normal man. He lived for, you know, into his late seventies in exile. And he wrote of six events over this time frame of God really just doing a work and showing up and showing, you know, showing who he was. And Daniel wrote this for encouragement and for direction on how God is in control still. This might look like a loss, like God is losing, but the fact is God is still in control. And um, over the next nine weeks, we're going to dig into God's word. We're going to look at how Daniel lived this long road of obedience in a godless society in hopes that we can stretch our understanding on how to live today. We get instruction on how to live in a situation that is directly in opposition to God through what Daniel lived. Um, I want you to turn now to Daniel 6, 16, and 20. If you look in your Bible, um, this is when Daniel's in the lion's den. And he says that, um, you know, the, the king was concerned about Daniel being in the lion's den. He really liked Daniel. And he says this in, in um, Daniel six sixteen. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. You go down to chapter 19 or verse 19, excuse me. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Now, what are the, the common factor here? What are the repeated words? 
right? It's about serve continually. So we want to figure out with the help of Daniel, Daniel, how do we serve God continually? How do we be women that serve continually? So I want you to be thinking about that as we, as we read through these chapters and as we go through this study. So I think now that we can turn to chapter one of Daniel and start digging into the word. So let's start. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put the treasure house and put them in the treasure house of his God. Now, right away, right off the top here, we get this feeling that Nebuchadnezzar is saying, no longer your God, but my God. My God is better than your God by what he did with carrying off the temple, the temple um, articles. And Daniel also lets us know right away that even though it looks lost, it looks like God, you know, has lost this battle or whatever, and that Babylonia has won. The fact is, is that God's hand was in it all. And that um, when he addresses the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that we know that God's hand is in this all. One commentary wrote that our long-suffering God used King Nebuchadnezzar to inflict the discipline on a continually disobedient people. God knew what was going to happen. In the prophecies, he said, you need to change your ways over and over and over again. And they did not. And this was the result. Okay, so let's continue on. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So we know that Daniel came from that line. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezriah. The chief official gave them new names. Now, I just want to stop there before we get into the new names. The king's strategy was to assimilate the top notch into the Babylonian culture. He wanted to completely obliterate the religion and the culture and essentially brainwash them and use their skills and talent for Babylonian and advancement. And you know, and you might think, oh, wow, that was a really smart strategy, but not when you serve Yahweh, right? Because what they intended for evil, God used for good. And we're going to learn about that in the chapters to come. After researching a little bit on The Babylonian culture, after doing some research, um, says that they were knowledgeable in trades and commerce, overall very well-educated people, making great progress in society, you know, in contributions. They had a strong, dominating, corrupt military power that overruled everything. There was even a, um, in the Bible, Mac and Kings, where the king of Babylon 
actually watched a, um, a Jewish leader. They watched, he watched them kill the, his son and then gouged the leader's eyes out. So the last thing that he would remember seeing was his son dying. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, people that we're talking about here. Um, they were known for being polytheistic, which means they worship themselves and many God and goddesses, and they are known for their disdain for God's rule. Um, we saw that in them taking the temple items and kind of, you know, that idea of, well, I'm going to put it to our Lord G gods, you know. The evil that ensued from their religious beliefs was not limited to gutting, decapitation, heightened sexual promiscuity, sacrifice of children, mass killings, and evil dictatorship. Um, Babylon served as an opponent to God and his people, and it served as a symbol all throughout the Bible of man's arrogance, especially in the rejection of God. So this is what Daniel faced and his, his friends for three years of training. The goal was to transform them into Babylonians, to wash away their culture, their religion, and bring about a change. And the picture of this is shown in their name changes. So I want to talk a little bit about the name changes. So let's go back to Daniel 1 verse 6. The Bible says, Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezriah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Ezra, Abednego. Okay, so I looked up more meaning on these names. Daniel, in the Hebrew meaning, meant God is my judge. Hananiah meant Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael meant who can compare to God. Ezra, Yahweh has helped. Notice that they are all centered on God. And the new Babylonian meaning for Daniel to Belshazzar meant lady, protect the king. Hananiah's new name of Shadrach meant I am fearful of God. Mishael, which is Meshach, now means I am humiliated. I am despised. Ezra changed to Abednego, now meant the servant of Nebo. All of them, there's different um, thoughts on the meanings of the names and mostly what it has to do with is a change, a change from Yahweh to now a focus on man, um, a focus on self, a cowardice, being slave to man, and to be um, focused on the little g-gods as well. So you can see the change, and we don't have to ponder for long to realize that um, they're working inside out to change their identity. You know, it's as if they're saying, you are mine. I am the Babylonian king and I will rule over you. And God is no longer a factor in who you are. And when we talked at our last session, we studied the armor of God. 
and we had a heightened sense of awareness of the devil's schemes, you know, trying to change your identity, trying to feed you what the world has to offer. You know, the father of lies making us question who we really belong to, you know, being enamored and so distracted by culture that we're not thinking about God. I mean, this is exactly um, what is happening to Daniel in his in his um, Jewish friends there that they're being educated in the ways of the world. They're being completely enamored with all these things. And yet, as we will see, they stay resolved to stay strong to um, their Jewish culture, religion, and their focus on the Lord. And I'll have you know that um, the queen and King Nebuchadnezzar in the future continue to use Daniel's name and Daniel can continues to use his name. You know, it's like he knew who he was and whose he was. Now we're going to go into Daniel 1, verse 8 through 16, where Daniel really had to pick his battles. He was exposed to all of this teaching, all of this learning. He was um, called these awful names. And here we're going to find that he is resolved to not break the food laws. And they had been in direct disobedience. That's why they're even exiled in the first place. So it's interesting to think about which battle Daniel picks. So let's start. So in verse eight, Daniel was resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Because remember earlier in the verse, it said that the king had assigned them a daily amount of food and wine. Okay, so verse eight, but Daniel was resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than any other of the young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the, the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to test, he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Some commentaries say fatter, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. So the guards took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So during the course of the training that took place, learning all the new things of Babylonia, learning about the gods, learning the language, you know, having to eat the food, getting new names, all this stuff, Daniel picked his battle, and he chose to be resolved about food. Okay, um, I think that Daniel probably, from knowing the scriptures, knew that you know in that that journey that we talked about, that nine hundred miles, that he was going to have to be resolved about something. Okay, so let the Lord lead him, let the Lord test him. You know, the small child, because the small child of food is nothing compared to praying and having death looming over you. Okay, so you see this kind of like build up of these small trials, but resolve not to break the law of the Jews about 
food. And so in um, question number nine in the book, or on your paper, she says, Daniel submitted to a name change and to learning the Babylonian language, literature, mythology, and history, but he balked about eating Babylonian food. Any ideas why? So can we look up these verses? Ex or Ezekiel 4.13. And would somebody be willing to read that? <clears throat> Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Okay. So what does that tell you? Could have been offered to idols. That's one thing that they say. This is why this could have been a big deal for him. Let's, let's keep reading. Let's go to um, the 9 through 34. Will somebody read that? Hosea? Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who was assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. How far am I supposed to go? That was... Was the evidence? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Nobody else will. Does somebody have it? They will not stay in the land of the Lord. Instead, Ephraim will return to Egypt, and they will eat unclean food in Assyria. They will not pour out their wine offering to the Lord, and their sacrifices will not please him. Their food will not will be like the bread of mourners. All who eat will become defiled, for their bread will be for their appetites alone. They will not enter the house of the Lord. Okay, so an example of people who will eat this will be unclean. That was probably a big concern of Daniel's. The reason that they're there in the first place is due to everybody not, you know, being in disobedience. So I also want to have somebody look up Exodus 34, 15. That was in her digging deeper section. And someone could read Exodus thirty-four, fifteen. Let's uh, make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and we go a horn after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods. And one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice. So what what it is is that they sacrifice these animals and then they go ahead and eat them. So reasons why he might have been resolved to this are what? Number one. It would defile him. These are probably not kosherly methods that they used either. And then also the fact that this was sacrificed to non, to, to gods. You know, and He's resolved not to. And part of me thinks, and I don't know if this is accurate, this is just me thinking, is like, you can call me whatever you want, but I'm not going to take part 
entering into my body this defiled food. You know what I mean? Like we should expect people to call us names. We should expect that kind of thing. But, you know, at some point you have to say, what is my battle? Where am I resolved to say, I'm not going to do that because it goes against what the Lord told me to do, you know, that kind of thing. And, and we, um, again, going back to what we studied in the armor of God, you know, stand firm with the belt of truth, right? Stand firm. And, and this is an example of Daniel standing firm. So how did he cope in this society? He stood firm on truth. Okay, so let's keep reading. Now we're in 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. So three years later, after all this training, they come to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with him, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezriah. Just pause there a second. Daniel is consistently referring to his name in um, Hebrew. Okay, he's not, even the king later on calls him Daniel, who we call Belshazzar. So um, he might have not, he might have been very resolved with the food, but he knew who he was. You know, he knew, he knew whose he was. Just thought of that. The king talked with them and he found none to be equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in a matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. So they passed all the tests. And the king found them 10 times better than the magicians, the enchanters, and his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, so the point of what we're talking about is how can we, like Daniel, stand firm in our faith in a godless society that doesn't value what we value. Is there anything that stuck out that you guys could bring about, and we could kind of brainstorm here, about Daniel? What did he do? What are some things you can take away from what we just talked about? He knew the word. He knew the word. He probably had people pouring into his life, the word. What about his friends? He found his people. Throughout, we'll see Meshach. Um, I hate calling them that, you know, because... <laughs> I know. You know, I did. And I don't know what thinks about it, but um, his buddies, his <laughs> Jewish friends, he had his people, you know? What else? Like how respectful he was in asking permission instead of just being like, no, I'm not doing this. He, he, pr he proposed a solution a compromise of let's try it and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Just very respectful the whole way around. Yes, and that comes up actually quite a bit in here as a as a, one of his characteristics is that he goes about things peacefully. He works with God to make things happen. You know, not a bust through. What else? Something that I thought like he's not filled with the Holy Spirit yet. You know, because that's not. It's mm -hmm. New Testament, so like he really had to be quiet and listen to like be like to wait for God to move and not be ahead of himself or ahead of what was happening and really you know, <coughs> rely on that on, on, on listening to, to the Father. Yeah, yeah, 
And that again, you know, from his relationship and the value that he took in knowing the scripture and, and um, being obedient, I say, I think would go along with that of um, just God honoring obedience. And then with that, you'll see as a continual that God gave back to him, like God set him up for success and worked with him along the way. We're going to talk about that in this minute, but I want to continue to talk about what else did you see in Daniel? Is there anything else? I think one thing that strikes me is there's no backlash. There's no anger, frustration, confusion, hatred. I, I just think about how when we feel threatened and we feel like we're in a corner, all of that ugliness comes out. And that's one of the criticisms you hear about Christians mm -hmm. in our society, that we're so nasty at those who are different from us. Mm -hmm. He was different, but he was um, really held in the hand of God and under the power of the Holy Spirit so that he didn't come at them with that anger and fear. Like, we feel cornered. And he was really cornered. But God was with him. It's such a difference from how we react. When we feel threatened, we don't just keep our mouths shut. <laughs> I think he had... Um an inner conviction and that word resolved. He was resolved. He, like he knew what he was supposed to do and he wasn't going to um, back down and he trusted the Lord to carry him through. I just, I really can respect that. What were you gonna say, Johnny? I was gonna say trust. Oh, he was trusting in the Lord. He was trusting in the Lord. Mm -hmm. That was a huge. Sure. He was courageous. I mean, how courageous yeah. did he have to be to like, step out. <laughs> I mean, I think about today's society. I mean, to be courageous today is like, you know, there's so much offense flying this and that direction. And mm -hmm. your words, like you said, can be like, you know, mistaken as arrows, but it need to be courageous. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now the next thing that we have to say um, about it all is that he was he was in Babylonian, Babylonia, but he wasn't of Babylonia. And we're going to see that and keep thinking about that because, of course, we want to be in the world, because we are, but not of the world. You know, so just keep thinking that. But the other part of this is that it's not just Daniel as the main character here. I, I want to talk about what God did in chapter one, because he actually did a lot. So mm -hmm. let's go through and talk about and highlight the character of God in um what you see here. I mean, you can start in verse 2 and let the brainstorm and talk aloud here. <clears throat> what areas do you see God at work already in chapter 1? What does verse 2 say? The Lord gave victory to the king. So he gave the victory to him. Yeah, so he, he's there, right? You know, be, be, before the beginning, right? We just learned that in our sermon. <laughs> he gave the king. That that was his decision. That was God's. Mm -hmm. That was God's hand over it. Um, I put it that in verse three. You know, Daniel was chosen to be these this one left behind and lining all the things up so Daniel could have this resolve. Like how? Think about your own life. Like who has come into your life to get you to the point where you're like. I serve God. I am a disciple of Jesus. Other people have poured into you, and God orchestrates that. You know, so it didn't just happen that he just knew all these things, and God's a part of that. And so his hand is there. 
Um, how about keep going to verse 9? Because God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the Right. So God gave the Daniel, God gave Daniel the favor through the he works with everybody, whether they believe in him or not, God rules over all. And so his hand is at work there, giving favor to Daniel and his friends in order for them to be successful. You know, and I can imagine that played a huge part again in that continual trust relationship. Were you That's just exactly gonna say that? what I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michelle, can I jump back to the previous point? Sure. I, in my reading through the Bible in three years, I just came <laughs> across um, Second Chronicles 7, and this is not the part where people turn and says, this is God speaking right after the dedication of Solomon's temple. Okay, so it's big, it's huge, it's glorious, it's golden. Um, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this lamb and to this temple? People will answer because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods worshiping and serving them that is why he brought this all this disaster on them mm -hmm. and that's right there in verse two mm -hmm. you know all those <clears throat> consecrated vessels you referred to this that the king of babylon was trying to exert his will but god had already predicted it right. which you have alluded to but this is the exact mm -hmm. word mm -hmm. So his hand, even in the taking of the temple objects, <coughs> yeah. predicted and prophesied before it happened. By God himself. Yeah. Um, I put verse 15 because I think this is funny. Most commentaries were like, okay, so they ate vegetables and water and got fatter <laughs> and looked better. It's like they said that the God had to have had a hand in that, that, you know, he... Um, <coughs> He reconciled that they were following, you know, his Jewish law that, you know, for a reason and then um, made them look better and, and fatter from vegetables. So maybe they had avocados. They had what? <laughs> avocados. <laughs> Good fats, right? <laughs> um, and then, um, of course, 17 had another God working. What did he do there? Gave them knowledge. Gave them knowledge and understanding. So he helped them understand the pagan stuff so that he could then be used for what they want is evil, God wants is good. The rest of that story is going to play out as you read it. It's our God doing the work. And then Daniel gets the extra nod of understanding visions from God as well. To, to further success that I am not going to take because Marsha's going to be talking about that next week. So our God is good. And yes. Back to the um, being fatter with vegetables. I wonder if that word fatter means what we think it means or does it mean more muscular? 
Well, I don't know. There's there's commentary on both ways. Like they were even to be beefier, like you gotta have protein in that biologically, you know, whatever, but God can do whatever he wants, right? Vegetables are gonna build you up. That's you know, I just think it has to do with the cleanliness of the food as opposed to we all know what is not clean food. And and Babylon was a wealthy nation, had access to all of the the things that God would say, those things aren't necessarily good for you. They might taste great. Just like the chocolate bar we love to eat unless we eat the bitter chocolate, you know? Um, So the Lord had all of that under control. And I don't necessarily think it means that. I think it just means that they had a look about them that made them stand out and um, healthy looking and and not scrawny and skinny and sickly and weak. He made them just like he needed them to be. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it was a lot it was a lot more focused on the fact that um you know, uh, the Babylonians knew that the Jewish people were sticklers for that stuff and so he was going to enforce his will to make them eat the food, you know, more of that like I am you are answering to me. I am now your God. Why aren't we sticklers on that now? <laughs> there is a Daniel plan, I learned, but. <laughs> yeah, I think Jesus talks about that actually in the New Testament about um, not having to um, go by those laws. But. but I have a question. If Jesus is the Word made flesh, He's the Word, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if the Torah is the foundation of scripture the foundation of of the lord revealing himself to his people that covenant wouldn't it make sense that it's still active i mean when jesus comes wouldn't he be observing torah yes so the right i think well, there's always a um like a there's always a kingdom answer with jesus though like he always um it wasn't necessarily yes or no it was like this kingdom answer so i think that's and, and he was opening up himself to all the world and not just the Jews. Right. Mm-hmm. So he changed things so that everyone was involved now. 